This is Brian Colburn from the Playlist Wars podcast, and you are listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again and welcome to the show. Today's guest is an orchestral composer for television, film and video game scores and concert works. He has composed several highly acclaimed soundtracks over his extensive career and he has won nine Emmy Awards and has been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Score. He is a member of the Board of Directors of ASCAP, a former governor of both the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, a past president of the Society of Composers and Lyricists and a lecturer at UCLA and USC. His name is Bruce Broughton. April 2021 for Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, I had the great pleasure of talking to Bruce Broughton via Zoom at his home in Los Angeles, California. In part one of his two-part interview, amongst other things, we talk about his way into television scoring, his first film projects, and his work on Suverado, Tombstone, and young Sherlock Holmes, meeting along the way a certain Mr. Steven Spielberg, and of course, Throughout both episodes, you'll be hearing samples of the music from what many people consider one of the finest composers ever to work on film and television.
but I started the interview by asking Bruce about his beginnings in music. Uh, I was born into a musical family. There, there was no way I could avoid it. Um, I had a grandfather who was a composer. Uh, all of my grandparents were musical. My parents were musical, meaning that they could play two instruments. My brother was a professional musician, a professional trombone player. I had an uncle who was a songwriter. We grew up in the Salvation Army. So you know, being a Brit, that the Salvation Army's got this big music program. And so when I was a boy, I started taking lessons on the piano when I was about five or six. And then I was handed a trumpet and I was expected to learn to play that. So I learned to play that as well. I ended up being a mediocre brass player, but a pretty good piano player, classical piano player. So, I mean, I was just, I mean, there was just kind of no way of, of missing it. And as I got older, initially when I was a boy, I wanted to be an animator, but I finally gave that up for whatever reason, lack of support maybe, and went into music. When I got to the university, I didn't know really what to study. So I picked music because I knew something about it. And I picked it as a stopgap, thinking that if I spent enough time in university, by the time I got out, I'd know really what I wanted to do. But in fact, I became a composer because <laughs> I had a composing degree, you know. So then it was kind of like, what am I going to do with this? And I decided to go into the movies because I wanted to write music that would make people feel things. You know, there was a emotion that, that would reach people. And movies seem to be a great way of being able to do that. With my background... I knew nobody in the movies, but eventually I got a job at TV, at CBS television and got involved in it. So that's the long answer to your short question. How did you get your first assignment on TV? Well, as I said, I started working for CBS television. And what that meant was I was not hired as a composer. I was hired as a music supervisor, actually an assistant music supervisor. Because I was 22, I guess, when I got that job. So I worked for 10 years in the CBS music department, and I eventually ended up managing it and was assistant director of music for CBS and would have would probably have become director of music for CBS had I stayed. But by that time, most of what I was doing was managerial. But I did have the opportunity to write music. So on the shows that we were producing, which were Gunsmoke, Hawaii Five-0, Wild Wild West, and a host of shows that you've never heard of, I started working on scores. So the first TV show that I worked on that I got a credit on uh, was Gunsmoke, the old Western. In fact, I'm even in it. I'm playing the piano. It's a comedy. So I got my start working at CBS. And then when I left CBS to become a freelancer, uh, I had done enough work that people had seen that they were interested in, in hiring me. So I started work. Actually, I, I worked immediately after CBS. I got the series to Quincy, the old TV show. I did four years on that, which was, you know, wonderful right out of the box, just... I started working, so it turned out really great. Gentlemen, you are about to enter the most fascinating sphere of police work, the world of forensic medicine.
you know, uh, let me let me just say this right here. Somebody asked me about this the other day. I work on so much TV. Like I said, four years, basically four years with Quincy. I, I don't know how many episodes. Somebody told me I did over 50 episodes of Dallas. I did a lot of TV. You know, I don't remember them. If I watched a Quincy now, I might remember that I might remember the show. I might remember that I worked on it. I probably would not remember the music. I've watched episodes of Dallas that took me about 40 minutes to get into it and suddenly realize that I had worked on this show. <laughs> you know, I, I listen to the music and I think, well, that sounds like me. That's probably me, but I don't remember this show at all. So, I mean, there's so much music I've written. I really don't remember it all. But I'm sure there's one particular episode of Dallas that you do remember working on. The infamous episode when JR, played by Larry Hagman, was shot. The music of that was superb, particularly the actual oh, story of, of, that, uh, of that scene. Yeah, I remember doing it. Uh, I remember it was a really big, I mean, for, for one thing, working on that show was a lot of fun. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, I had a friend, was associate producer, and we had met working on Hawaii Five-0 a couple of years earlier. And he was a great guy. And we used to sit there and we'd look at these shows and we'd laugh and laugh and laugh because everybody was just so horrible to everybody, you know, yeah. and the shows didn't, they didn't change that much from week to week. So it was just, it was a great series to work on. And the people who produced it were, were just wonderful. I mean, they were a lot of fun, but yeah, I remember that show. I remember it was a real big deal in those years. Dallas was such a big thing. It was like, you couldn't open up a newspaper without reading an article about Larry Hagman or, or somebody. I mean, JR had done this or whatever, you know. Yeah, it was great. So yeah, I remember the show. Working on those TV series, how much did you learn your scoring technique? Oh, I, how did I learn on it? Um, working at CBS actually helped me because my education, even as a pianist, was primarily as a classical person. I didn't know anything about commercial music when I left the university. So when we worked at CBS, we hired a lot of composers to do the TV shows. And then CBS started producing motion pictures. And we started, you know, we started hiring the really big names, like we had Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams and Henry Mancini and Lalo Schifrin and uh, Leonard Rosenman and Larry Rosenthal. And we had all these big names, Quincy Jones, you know, all these guys. And so I would go to the sessions and before the sessions, I would look at their music. And then I'd go to the sessions and I'd listen to them and I'd, I'd see what they were doing. I would hear what they were doing. I'd see how they worked with the orchestra. I'd see how they worked with the, you know, with the picture. And then getting the opportunity to do some writing on my own for the TV shows was really invaluable. In those days, everything was done acoustically because synthesizers hadn't been invented yet. I'm so old. <laughs> I, I finally became aware of this when I was teaching classes a couple of years ago. I'm so old that I realized I started in the days before technology. The technology had just changed a few years before I got into it from doing magnetic. Oh, I, I, forget, I, I forget the system they had, but they, they started going to magnetic tape. But anyway, the whole thing of film is that they used to have this thing, this, these celluloid strips with pictures on it called film. Well, I haven't seen a piece of film in I don't know how many years because now it's all done digitally. The music's all done digitally. Everything now is done technologically. It's all being done in ways that are completely different from the way that it was when I began. When I began at CBS, we had an orchestra of 18 people. You could use any combination you wanted. 
but you couldn't go over 18 because it was a budget thing. So if you wanted to use 17 flutes and a bass drum, fine, as long as just make it work. So we had a chance to experiment. And the guy who was the head of music for CBS was named Mort Stevens. Mort was the guy who wrote the Hawaii Five-O thing. Mort was a really talented guy who had been an arranger for, originally he was a clarinet player, and then he became an arranger for Sammy Davis. Sammy Davis went to Universal to do a TV show and told him that he wanted his arranger, Mort, to do the show. So that's how Mort got into television. So even though Mort had a sort of a classical education, I don't think he had much of an education in terms of composition, but he was incredibly talented and a very emotional writer and really great for drama and really even better for melodrama. Very creative, very, very creative. So he would do things that he had never learned in school that nobody had ever seen before. And he would put this stuff out with our 18-piece orchestra, and he would do things to just make your jaw drop. I said earlier that I, I had grown up in the Salvation Army, and I, you know, I played in brass bands and all that stuff. So I had been around brass all my life. The first session I went to when I went to CBS was a session that, that Mort Stevens did for Gunsmoke that had 18 brass. He had six trumpets, six horns, six trombones. I never in my life had ever heard brass writing like that. Never. And of course, it was one on a part and everybody was just, it was stunning music. So I copied him, you know, I mean, whenever he would do something great, I'd go, oh, I'm going to learn how to do that. And so I would try to do it. And by doing this a lot, what I eventually found out that he started copying me because I started to be, be getting good at what I was doing. And this is a very normal thing. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith used to go when he was, Jerry Goldsmith worked in the same department as I did years before. Jerry used to follow around Bernard Herman and Alex North. And he used to go to their sessions and he would pick up these things. I mean, Bernard Herman actually sued him. <laughs> Bernard Herman sued everybody, but Bernard Herman actually sued him thinking that he was stealing his ideas. But Jerry did pick up a lot of stylistic things from these guys as I picked up stylistic things. But I mean, I was like a, like a kid in a candy store being a CBS. So when I had a chance to try things out, Particularly when I became freelance, I was working every week, like on Quincy, I was doing a Quincy every week. And sometimes I was doing a Dallas at the same time. So you do one or two shows a week and you're constantly writing, constantly writing, constantly writing. In the middle, I might have seen a movie and I'd heard some things that I wanted to try out myself. So I would, you know, I'd practice that and I'd fail two or three times and then eventually I'd learn how to do it. So, I mean, it was great. <laughs> it was just great because you're always working with musicians and musicians would sometimes tell you, you know, you were doing wrong. And sometimes, you know, things didn't work. So, so you'd have to fix them. You have the, the orchestra sitting there and the producers sit, standing behind you. And if it doesn't work, you can't just say, well, okay, too bad about that. Now you have to fix it. So you learn how to correct your mistakes right there with a lot of pressure on you. I mean, it was, it was a great way to learn, really a great way to learn. So I just kept doing more and more and more and more and more. And I learned more and more and more. I still do. I mean, and now I, now I call it teaching. I give lessons to people and, and I learn from their mistakes and I, I have to explain to them what they're doing wrong or why this won't sound so good or whatever. And, and as I'm telling them things, I'm listening to myself talk and saying, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, that's true. That's true. And then when I go to write myself, I remember my own lessons to myself. It's a it's a never ending process. But before we move on, there's one series which I do remember your work on as well. The second season of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, I think in 1980, which you produced some wonderful music on the episodes you scored. 
particularly at times when I thought it was a very small ensemble. And if it was one episode you won an Emmy for your music. Tell us your memories about working on the second season of Buck Rogers. I think it was bigger than Dallas because that was already universal. And sometimes we would have 30 or 35 people in the orchestra, which to me was like, you know, really big. The first season was done by Stu Phillips. The second season, the producers changed. The guy who had created it, Glenn Larson, went somewhere else or was let go or something. And they brought in the guy, John Matley, who had been the executive director of Gunsmoke. So I had worked with John for a couple of years. And after John left Gunsmoke, he developed another series called How the West Was Won. So I worked on How the West Was Won. Dallas and How the West Was Won had a lot of people who had worked on shows I'd worked on at CBS. And this is one of the things about television is that when a television series ends, the people who work on the series start to work on other series. They don't go to movies. They tend to stay in their own realms. So they move around. So you see all these people again, if, as long as you stay working in that medium. So I worked with John and I had already been working at Universal because I was working on Quincy. So I worked on, on Buck Rogers as well. Um, Buck Rogers was different than Quincy in that it was one of the space show and it was very imaginative. It had, because it was science fiction, it relied heavily on the fiction. John was a writer as well as a producer, which most television producers are. He had a big interest in sci-fi. So uh, he tweaked it, you know, the way he did. And he had, he was a good storyteller. So any, anyway, so we had, we had all these stories that were kind of goofy and crazy. And I got to write these sort of exotic scores. It was the first show that I got an Emmy on the Seder, I remember, which in itself is a pretty goofy story about a Seder, you know, and a Seder meets Buck Rogers. That's pretty goofy.
Well, you know, let me just put one thing in here. I, I don't know really what it's like now because I haven't worked on a series for a long time. But in those days, what was really cool about a series was that particularly if you could work on a lot, like I worked on, I was the main guy on Quincy and I, I was the most frequent composer on Buck Rogers. You became part of the production team. And you were treated as like almost like a member of the family. And people, frankly, didn't come to your sessions to hear what you were doing. Nobody was giving you any feedback. If, if you wrote a score they didn't like, you'd hear about it. That didn't happen very often. But mostly people weren't coming there giving you advice or giving you their two cents. You just, you know, you went home, you wrote the score, you went back to the studio, you recorded the score, and basically it went on the air. And if there was any fallout, you'd hear about it and then... You do whatever you could, you know. That thing of not having anybody look over my shoulder was a really important thing because growing up working at CBS, when we were working on Hawaii Five-0, the original show, not, not the one that's on the air now, but the original show was, particularly the first few years, was really energetic. They never used dissolves. They always used whip pans. So you're going, <laughs> and the scenes would happen very quickly. And there's a lot of action and, and the music was very upbeat. And talking about Mort Stevens, the guy who wrote the... Um, the title. Mort's style was to be very energetic and to be actually even melodramatic. He, he would just go over the top. And frankly, the show took it. So when the rest of us went on to it, we couldn't, I was only told to back off once. I had done something that was just too much for the producer, you know, but I used to do these really goofy things thinking, oh man, they're, you know, they're going to dump this. And then, oh, I love it. I mean, one time the producer said, that scene I, I was I was just getting ready to tell him I was getting ready to apologize for the music in the scene that I'd written and and he turned to me as I was turning to him and he said you know that's the perfect music for that scene I said oh really I why and he says well because that scene always needed something it just sort of sat there that that scene always needs something weird and different and man this music is weird and different <laughs> so I said oh great thank you you know so I learned something right then I learned to shut up and not tell people your mistakes but I think that in those days. There was so much trust for the composers. There were not that many people looking over your shoulder and you weren't getting notes. You weren't getting all the stupid stuff that composers get now. It was really great. I mean, it was a, a chance to just keep getting your muscles bigger and bigger and bigger, you know. The only wife I've in my opinion, is the one with Jack Lord in. So yeah. That's just my opinion. Jack Lord is his Steve McGarrett. Yeah, he was, he was McGarrett. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a funny thing about him. That's not a terrible thing to say. He was a tall guy. I'm six foot two, so I'm a tall guy. He was six one, six two. He was a tall guy and thinner than I was. So he, he looked very tall and he wore lifts on his heels because oh. he, I, I met him one time and he walked by me and I happened to look down at his feet and, and he had heels. <laughs> so he was six foot two. He was even taller, you know, very lord like. You've worked on a number of great miniseries in your career. One that particularly stands out in your work, in my opinion, is your, is your music for How the West Was Won. That one stood out for, well, one specific reason. It was, um, I think it lasted two seasons. Uh, the first season was, as I remember, it was something like a 24-hour episode. It, it started and ended as a miniseries. The whole thing was sort of like a miniseries. It started and ended as a three-hour production. So the first episode was three hours, and then I think the closing episode was three hours. And then in between, they had weekly one-hour episodes. I ended up working on the hourly episodes. And by that time, the original composer, Jerry Emmel, who had done the uh, Dallas theme, Jerry and I worked together at CBS as well. Uh, so, I mean, again, maybe we, all these, it's like a family just kind of going all over the place. So Jerry had already left the series. And so I got the series and um, 
Jerry had a terrific career in uh, doing TV series. And like he did the theme to Dallas, the theme to Knott's Landing. He did that well, I mean, he did a ton of stuff. You know, he did great. Anyway, I did the series. And then the next year was really interesting because the next year it went into a two hour format. So every week or every other week, something like that, you would have this movie. It's basically this motion picture done. And because it was an anthology thing, every week was different. It didn't follow a line like Dallas did. There was one show I did that was uh, about the Chinese coming to America. It was sort of like, uh, do you remember Roots? Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So it was sort of like a Chinese Roots. That was that was the intention. And um, so I had to figure out how to write what sounded like Chinese music to a Western audience and place it in a Western context. And of course, I, mean, I didn't know anything about Chinese music. Um, I had a very close friend who was American Chinese and, and he patted me on the hand and said, yeah, that was close enough. <laughs> Every year, there is the Feast of Qingming. And we honor you ancestors with offerings in yellow papers. I honor you now. But there are only stones in the papers and there is no food for a feast. I must leave the Flowery Kingdom and take my family to a place far away where there is plenty. It is called America. We can make our fortunes there and never be in want again. But I will return to China, to this shrine, and bring you gold coins and sweet cakes. My spirit will not wander a foreign land. I mean, there are things like that. It was it was a really unusual, really an unusual comedy. Then that we would have other things that were on very specific topics in this Western genre. So it, creatively, it was really, really a lot of fun. And again, as I said, it was working with people I knew. John Mantley, the guy who had done Gunsmoke, who later went on to do Buck Rogers, was the executive producer. And he was a great guy, and and we got along fine. And and I really liked his stories. So. Um, you're not my first, okay? So you, this isn't the first interview I've done like this. And over the last couple of years, what I find myself talking about as I'm reliving my past is I had a really great time. I worked on a whole bunch of series and a whole bunch of shows, a whole bunch of movies with a lot of people who were really, really great people and or they were really talented and or they were really interesting and or they just made really fun product. So looking back, I only remember these things when I'm talking something like this. So How the West was one was, um, yeah, it was a great show. Just really a great show. Also, it was, over, it was done over at MGM, which is where I met Al Silvestri because Al was working on a show called Chips. And uh, so he was doing disco every week and I was doing guitars every week, you know, with the uh, Westerns. And you actually scored an episode of Chips because they produced yeah. for that for some reason. And Silvestri wasn't a dramatic composer. This is a really dumb story. I think the world of Al, I always did. I mean, he was a real young guy coming out on Chips. He's, he's a little bit younger than I am. I, I guess we're sort of about the same age. He's a little younger than I am. Uh, but Chips was his first big break. 
we both owe a lot to the guy who had been head of music for MGM. And at that time, the reason they got Al was because in the first season, they had somebody else who was a decent guy, but he was a more traditional composer. And this show had really taken off. So they wanted something that was vibrant and young and everything. So here was Al, basically just out of school, a couple of years and newly married and starring a family. So, and he was really good at disco. He was a guitarist. And, you know, so, so he wrote disco scores because disco was really big at that time. Every episode, Al was writing disco. Okay, he did it great. Did it fine. He had studied a little bit about film, and I think he had done a movie beforehand or something like that. So he has some experience. So, but, but he's do, doing disco. So he does everything on chips. And one day I get a call to do chips. And I said, why are you calling me? Why aren't you calling Al? Well, because this show has some drama in it. And Al doesn't do drama. He only does disco. I said, oh, really? I said, so how much drama does this show have in it? He says, well, it's pretty dram dr dramatic. I said, how much disco does it have in it? Not very much. Maybe 10%. You know, okay, so I, I had never done a disco piece in my life because I was like the dramatic guy, right? So I do this episode and I would say it's probably 80% disco. So I end up writing what Al's writing. I mean, doing the same thing that he's doing, you know? And there were a couple of scenes that had a little bit of mystery in it or something. I don't know. It was basically that. So the next week, Al goes back and he's suddenly the disco king again. And about three or four episodes after this, in the, one of the shows that he was doing, they had a um, they had a show within a show. They, were, they had a TV show, and there was a documentary that was being played on this TV that was in the scene. So Al had to write documentary music. Al's a composer; he can write anything, you know. So he writes the documentary. Well, who knew that he could write dramatically? Who knew that Al Silvestri could write dramatically? Well, I knew he could write dramatically. I, mean, I think a lot of people knew that, but the producers didn't know it until he got this. You know, so from then on, he was a dramatic composer too. It was, it was, it was really stupid. I mean, there was nothing, nothing that I did that he couldn't have done easily.
Aside from the Westerns, you also have a real affinity of the period miniseries of the era, what you have called in previous interviews Americana. Scores like Old Pioneers and The Blue and the Grey, for example. How do you account for your expertise in scoring for that era of American history? Well, I wasn't around in those years, but sometimes I feel like I'm old enough to have been. The music from that period I understand pretty well. It's the last period in Western music where the melody was still king and where harmonies were triadically, tonally based, and uh, they usually accompanied their melodies in, in a certain way that was done, certain traditional way. It was also a time when music was very passionate and very expressive. And so it has all the qualities in the 19th century. Not, I mean, I, there's a lot of music I like outside of the 19th century. Sometimes I think music should have ended at 1750 when Bach died, because you know, that was really music. But Bach has those characteristics too. There's a, a certain amount of expressiveness to all this kind of music. You know, it was the time of the big symphonic poems, like by Liszt and, and then the operas, you know, of course, by Strauss and Wagner and Verdi and all these guys. And, you know, you just can't beat that music. Tchaikovsky, Dvorak, Schumann, Brahms, Beethoven. These guys were the giants of Western music. When we got into the 20th century, melody was one of the first things that went. And expressiveness sort of followed. I mean, it's you don't hear a lot of expressive music now. You hear a lot of interesting music. You hear a lot of music that's done uh, as an exercise in experimentation. So when I do films of, from that time, it's fun for me, uh, and it feels good, to dip into that style. It's sort of like what John Williams did with um, Star Wars. You know, I mean, Star Wars, that it's, it's based on the Korngold style. That's not... <laughs> If you go back and you listen to John Williams' music, it's not that. It's a lot of other stuff. I mean, he he was a jazz piano player. I mean, John can write anything. He can write any style. Like if you look at the scores that he did for Lost in Space, the TV series, and you compare that to what he did on Star Wars, it's like two different guys, you know? That was a style that he did. That was a, a style that he accommodated for that show. It may have been because the producers asked him to do it or because he thought that it worked well or, what you know, whatever it was. Uh, so we all work in styles. You know, we all... We all do that kind of stuff.
Now, in the early 1980s, you progressed into features, feature films. How did you get your first assignment in features? My first feature film is called The Prodigal. It was a, a production uh, for Billy Graham, the evangelist. There are two Billy Grahams in this country. There is the evangelist and there's a rock and roll promoter. This was not the rock and roll promoter. This was definitely a Baptist film. Um, and I think I got it probably because of my background. Uh, my agent knew you know, what my background was. And so when the Billy Graham company called, it seemed to be like the perfect choice, but it, it was a good film. I mean, it was a nice film to work on. We had an orchestra and I, had a, I got a song out of it and, and it worked out well. The second movie I did was over at MGM called The Ice Pirates. I got that because I'd already had some movie experience, The Prodigal. I got it because they didn't have much budget for a composer, me. That was basically it. I think the movie got kind of a bad rap. The studio didn't like it. It was a takeoff on Star Wars. And it was pretty cute. I mean, it was goofy. I mean, it was really off the wall, but the studio didn't like it. And after we had finished the movie, it made them recut it and they really botched it up. So it's become a cult film now. And a lot of people, I'm always surprised at the number of people who know about, about uh, Ice Pirates.
And then the next movie was uh, Silverado. And that came about actually through my agent who um, said, uh, he called me up one day and he said, they're doing a Western that um, Lawrence Kasdan is doing over at Columbia. And he says, it's kind of a long shot, but what the heck, you know, see if we can get it. So I got a script. I read the script. Uh, the script was written by Larry and his brother, Mark. It was a really good script. It was a very dense script. It was very well written, very carefully written. I got a meeting, which is pretty typical. And it's a meeting that really shouldn't have lasted more than 30 minutes, if that, because I didn't know him and he didn't know me. It lasted about an hour and a half because we just talked and talked and talked. He hadn't shot the movie yet. We were talking about the script. We were talking about how I felt about the script. We were talking about how he felt about the script. Uh, he was talking about his intention. I was talking about how I felt about what he was talking about. My memory of it, it was like a love fest. I mean, it was like the greatest first date you could ever have. And whether I got the movie or whether I didn't get the movie, I walked out knowing that I had somebody there who I could talk to, you know, again in the future. So anyway, he he had other people to interview, people who had done movies, who had a lot more credits than I did. And he took a chance and he called me up and he said, I'm going to go with you. So we'll see how it goes.
And from that, I'll tell you, it was a great experience because I went on set a couple of times. They, they shot the movie down near Santa Fe in New Mexico. I went on set a couple of times and met the actors. I wanted to see what he was doing, how he dealt with everybody and you know, talked to him whenever I could. He was very clear about what he wanted. I think the thing that people don't understand about Silverado is that it was the first movie made after the genre had died. The best box office movie Western before Silverado was Blazing Saddles, which was a comedy. And uh, it was not only a comedy, it was a parody. And, you know, once you make a parody, you're pretty much done with the genre. So what Larry was doing was he was making a, a Western. And he said this to me. He said, I'm making a Western for people who have never seen a Western. And I said, well, like who? And he said, well, you say that because you and I grew up with Westerns. We grew up with Rory Rogers and Hopalong Cassidy and all that stuff. But he said, our kids haven't seen Westerns. And sure enough, I mean, the Westerns, they were gone. Oddly enough, that year, there was another Western, Pale Rider, uh, with Clint Eastwood. So that movie had a star in it. Our movie didn't have any stars in it. Our, the, the biggest star in our movie was John Cleese <laughs> from Monty Python, because the guys were just kind of getting on in their careers. You know, they were just becoming well-known. So the movie came out and it did okay. It wasn't a huge hit, but it, I mean, it did okay. But it started a rebirth. I mean, it was a rebirth for Westerns. And after that, Westerns started to come out a lot. And then Westerns started to get recreated and rethought and all this other kind of stuff. I think that was because of Silverado.
Silverado is a really well-made movie uh, and it's very well put together. You know, um, it's like the two of the main characters have the shoot off at the end when they, they have a history before the movie, when they first see each other in the movie, it's hello, Cobb, hello, Peyton. The last thing they say before they shoot is goodbye, Cobb, goodbye, Peyton. I mean, they have little bookends, you know, I mean, the whole movie is like that. The whole movie has everything, all the elements of the traditional Hollywood Western. So when he talked to me about the score, he was very specific. He said, this is how I see the movie. This is how it's structured. And what I want from you is I want what sounds like a traditional Hollywood big Western score. I said, oh, okay. That was pretty clear. So I knew the style I was working in. The style had been uh, already blazed. The, the path had been blazed by uh, Jerome Moross in The Big Country and uh, Elmer Bernstein in um, Magnificent Seven. Great. I mean, I love that. And so it was just energy up the yin-yang, you know? And that you know, was a great movie to work on. It was very exciting. And when they recorded the track, the music sounded pretty loud. You know, I mean, you can, the music's a, a real partner in the film. So it was, a, it was a great experience. Absolutely no complaints whatsoever about that experience. That was great. As we've talked about Silverado, we must now talk about, in my opinion, that film's darker brother, Tombstone, made in 1993. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a brother. I'd call it maybe a cousin. Okay, then the darker cousin, Tombstone. Um, you got that assignment on the behest of Jerry Goldsmith, who was unable to compose the score due to prior commitments. What are your memories of working on Tombstone? I remember really fondly. For one thing... Jerry was my idol. I mean, Jerry could do no wrong as far as I was concerned. I, I still think he was a terrific composer. He had so much skill and he was so good with film. He's a, a really a great model. We weren't buddies, but we knew each other. And, uh, and when I was working on the movie, I would call him occasionally. We would talk and chat and all that stuff. He knew the director, George Kosmatos, and he had a very thick relationship with the producer, Andy Vanya. So when Jerry couldn't do it because he got stuck on something else, uh, he recommended me, I guess. And, and so I got to do it. So I went to see this movie and they were only halfway finished with it because they were, they were struggling to get it done on time. You know, they had a huge time problem. So they had half the movie there and they had tracked it. They had put temporary music in it with Silverado. Hey, that makes sense. You know, it's a Western, got the same guy. And it was terrible. It was just terrible. And it made the movie look stupid. And I, you know, I looked at this and I thought, oh, I don't think I want to do this. This is really, this is really awful. You know? And we took a break. I remember during the screening and, and the director, George Cosmatis, walked out and he says, he's real happy. He says, so what do you think about my music? And I said, oh, I love your music, George. I just hate it in this movie. You know, so I really thought the movie stank. So I started to work on it without the Silverado score. I started working on it with my own stuff. And I started to get into it. I mean, the movie was really kind of fun, but it wasn't Silverado. It's a completely different kind of a movie. You know? I usually describe it this way. Silverado was about good guys, bad guys. It was about family. It was about friends. But you had really good guys and bad guys. In Tombstone, there are no good guys. They're all bad guys. 
You know, I mean, even the Earp family, I mean, they're, they're not great. You know, I mean, Wyatt Earp is kind of a bum. He's out there dealing cards in the bar, trying to make money, and he's cheating on his wife with some actress. And his wife, by the way, is at home, you know, doing drugs. I mean, it's just like, what the heck is going on here? You know? So the thing about Tombstone was, unlike what I went through with Silverado, where I was having very close conversations with the writer-director, Larry, I didn't have many conversations about Tombstone. There really wasn't any time. I just, I remember I just looked at the film and like two days later, I'm starting to write music for it. played the theme for the producer. That was not even the director, and the director was ticked off at that, but I played for the producer. And then I just did it. And it was sort of like working on Hawaii Five-O again. I mean, it was full of melodrama. The emotions were huge, way over the top. There's that one scene where um, one of the herbs gets shot and it's in the rainstorm and Wyatt's out there and he's screaming and yelling in the storm and the thunder's going and the lightning's going and the music is going, it's wonderful. It's great. It's been great to be in the movies. I mean, you can't write that in a symphony anymore, you can, but you can write it in the movies. And Tombstone is full of that stuff.
So I often get people saying to me, this has come up three or four times, they'll commission me to do a concert work. And I'll say, yeah, great. I'm, I'd love to do that. You know, I'll get that. I see you want like a three movement work and you know, and, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and then at the end, before we quit talking, they sometimes say to me, we should also tell you, we really like the score to Tombstone. And so I go, oh, okay. So I said, you like the melodrama? You like the big motions? Yeah, we really like that. Meaning, please give us some of that to you because that's what people like about Tombstone. Tombstone is a terrific movie. I think Tombstone is actually a friend of mine saw it the other day, Paul Williams, the actor, the singer, somewhere, Paul Williams. I know him through ASCAP. He and his wife just saw Tombstone for the first time the other day and he sent me a note, which is really, you know, it's really fun because he's the only guy I know who hasn't seen it. It's a fun movie. I mean, there's some performances in there that are just score aside. I mean, they're just worth watching just to watch Val Kilmer, to watch um, all the guys who were, who were the Earp brothers. I mean, the, the cast is great. All the bad guys, they're all great. I mean, it's just, it's a really fun movie, a really enjoyable. One of the main contributors to your wonderful score with Tombstone is friend of the station recording engineer Mike Wasterva, who you worked with on many occasions in the UK. What are your memories of working with Mike Wasterva? So the first time I worked with Mike, we were in Munich and we were doing a TV show called The Old Man and the Sea. I don't know why I was recording in Munich, but it, but it was. And Mike had come over from London to record it. I think Mike had worked, it was with the Gronke Orchestra at that time. And I think Mike had done a lot of work with him. I didn't know Mike from Adam because mostly I was working in LA. He had really good ears, you know, I mean, because he's the mixer, but you'd expect he'd have good ears for mixing. But he would say, you know, you need another one on that. The basses aren't in, give me a break. I mean, the basses aren't in tune, you know, but he was right, you know, or that the entrance here wasn't so good. I mean, he was listening to everything, listening, 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 listening. One of the things I remember about Mike is he was like a one-man band. And I, I mean that kindly in that it, it wasn't, he didn't have a ton of people around him 
other than people who had certain jobs to do with the technical stuff, uh, spin the tape or whatever. He could sort of produce the session because he was listening to everything. He would talk to you about the performance. He would talk to you about the balance. He was really a great guy to have. And he put on a great sound. He had this really cool sound, very big and very rich. I think I only worked once in London without Mike because he wasn't available. And it just wasn't the same. I mean, it, you know, what I got was okay, but it wasn't Mike. Lost in Mike, space, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Lost in Space works fine. You know, it's just great. But it was just like, like a different style of recording than, than what I was used to getting over there because uh, we even did one video game years ago, and it was the first video game that had an orchestral score. It was held back from release, so it wasn't the first release. Anyway, it was one of, one of the first things that had a score. And because it was all animation that I was doing, he changed his style. He went very dry and worked great. And the thing about Mike was he's so soft-spoken. You know, you could, you could hardly ever get a rise out of him. He's just, he'd sit there and he would, you know, just kind of smile. And he was with it, but, you know, and he was very proud of what he did. And he had his opinions, which were really kind of fun to listen to him go off on. Now, he's a great guy. Great guy. Terrific mixer. And with Tombstone, you continued your association with the Symphony of London Orchestra. When was the first time you worked with the Symphony of London? Well, as you're saying this, I just realized that there were several times I didn't work with Mike. The first time I worked with Symphony of London was on Master of Ballantrae, which was a TV show. It was produced by the same, same man who did Blue and the Grey. I think I got him because the show was produced by Columbia. And Columbia already had an arrangement with the Sinfonia through its contractor, Peter Willison. Since then, the orchestra has been taken over by John Wilson. Did you know that? Yes. And, and he's been, he did a really terrific recording of the Corn Gold Symphony with it. It was always a good orchestra. I always enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with Peter. I enjoyed working with all the people that he had. Never had any problems with it. Never had any reason not to work with him. So I worked on Master Ballantrae. We worked on the first Olympics. The first movie I worked with him was Young Sherlock Holmes. First time I ever saw my wife. She was playing in the orchestra. So I sort of owed that orchestra to my marriage or my marriage to that orchestra. Yeah, I worked with him every time I was over there. I would work with him. We did lots of things. I even did a couple of albums. I did one of Bernard Herrmann's music, one of Ivanhoe. Yeah, we did two Rocha albums. It's so in the Argonauts you did with him. It was amazing. Yeah. That score gave me a headache. <laughs> God, it was so noisy, you know. It's almost brassy in that score. Oh, and so many piccolos. It's the piccolos that got me. Overfilled with brass, that score. It's amazing. You did a fantastic recording on that. And also the Rocha score for Ivanhoe, the action music there is amazing. Hmm. You really recorded it so well. Anyway, I, I used the symphony for everything I could.
Aside from seeing your wife, what are your memories of working on the 1985 film Young Sherlock Holmes, with whom you worked with Eric Tomlinson as your engineer? Character that the recording on that, Keith Grant had done this stuff earlier than that. Master Ballantrae in First Olympics was Keith Grant over Olympic Studios. And we did Young Sherlock Holmes at Abbey Road. So that was the first time I worked at Abbey Road. So that in it itself was exciting. And I knew Eric Tomlinson. Uh, I knew his name from recordings that I had worked with when I worked at CBS. So I felt like I was really in the big time because I was working with a super engineer in this super recording, you know, recording space. When I was working on Silverado, uh, the director asked if he could hear the music that I was working on. It was before synthesizers, so I said, yeah, come on over and I'll play it for you on the piano. So I, I did that. And as I was there, he was sitting in my room and he saw on my desk a script that said Amblin Studios or something. And he looked at me and he said, what are you doing from Amblin? I said, oh, I don't know. They just sent me this script. It was uh, Young Sherlock Holmes. I hadn't read it yet. Well, that was uh, directed by Barry Levinson. So when I finished Silverado, Silverado came off really well, and everybody was very happy. And I almost immediately, within a couple of days, got a call about this Young Sherlock Holmes movie. And I went to see it. And, you know, it was a really good movie. It was full of action, like I said, but I also realized it was full of music. And I was tired. I had just finished Silverado, and I had worked, you know, night and day on that thing. And I... You know, like welcome to the real world, Bruce. So I had a meeting with Barry Levinson, the director, and he wasn't sure. You know, I mean, he was still kind of a new director. He had done, I think, one or two movies before that, and this was kind of a big thing. And getting a composer, I don't think he'd ever had a. I'm not sure he'd actually done a movie with a score before. So this was the first time that he was really taking a chance. And so I said to him, I said, "Look, why don't you?" I said, "Do you know Larry Kasdan?" He says, "Yeah." I said, "Why don't you talk to Larry and ask him his opinion?" Because I just did that movie with him. He said. Oh, I've already talked to Larry. So I know what happened. Larry found out what the movie was when he saw that script. He talked to the other guy because they had offices in the same studio and they were just kind of like a couple of feet away. I, I, I'm going to do a little whining right now because composers like to whine. Um, I try not to do it anymore because I'm grown up. Go ahead. But um, at the time, I was really over my head. I mean, I had just barely gotten into the movies and I had been happy they hadn't fired me because I hadn't screwed it up. Uh, so and here I am working on this other movie and now I'm working for Steven Spielberg. So I'm going from big to big to bigger, you know, and... Um, so I'm working on this show and it starts to get literally day and night, day and night, day and night. And I finished the last, the very last piece. I finished at six o'clock in the morning of the day that I had to fly to London to record it the next day. And I remember being so tired that um, I took my score and I drove down to Paramount Studios, gave the score to the guard to give to the copyists, went home, slept for three hours, got on the plane, passed out <laughs> and went to, um, arrived in London, absolutely sure that this was my last job that I would ever have, that I had written such a pile of gunk, you know, because it's just all on the piano. It all sounds like chopsticks on the piano. And um, so I was being nice to everybody. The producer was a really nice guy and I was talking to him. The director was a nice guy. I'm talking to him. But inside I'm thinking, okay, in a couple of days, we're never going to see each other again. Right? I got to the session and we put on the, the first piece and it sounded great. So I thought, Oh, maybe not. Maybe this will be okay. It got better and better and better and better and better and better. That was one of the weeks with the most fun that I ever had because it just didn't stop. I mean, every cue is just fun. And the movie, it's a terrific movie. I mean, it's really well made, you know. It was great. And the only thing I had to redo was one scene that I hadn't done enough in uh, where the temple was burning down at the end. And Barry came up and he said, no, we need more. We need more. You know? So I remember I took the score and I went back to the apartment that I was staying in. I stayed in 
you know Howard Blake, the guy who wrote Snowman? Yes, he's a guy actually revived East of Fondue of London. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I knew Howard, and Howard had loaned me his apartment. He was off taking a vacation or something. And so I would go back to his place, and he had a piano. So I'd sit there, and I remember redoing the score late at night, falling asleep because I was still jet-lagged, you know. And then I'd wake up and I'd do some more stuff. It turned out fine. I mean, that was so much fun. And they were so happy with the score, they gave me an extra week in London just to have on my own, which was very generous. So I have nothing but good memories of that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Did Steven Spielberg appear in any of the recording sessions? No, no, he didn't record. He, he didn't appear at the recording because we're in London and he was here. He showed up on the dubbing stage. So I remember I was at the dubbing stage and I, I looked looked up where there were some seats and there's Steven Spielberg. So um, Steven's talking to Barry, the director, and Steven says, you know, I really like this music. And Barry said, oh, great. You know, I'm glad you're happy with it. A long pause. And then, and then Steven said again, 
Barry, I really like this music. I really like this score. So I'm standing there listening to this thinking, that's pretty good. And Barry said, well, Stephen, you should meet the composer. This is Bruce Broughton. And Stephen looked at me and says, oh, hi. I really like this music. <laughs> it was very funny. Now, it was kind of like his style, you know. And I, uh, with Stephen, later I did Harry and the Hendersons. And I also did that TV show he had, Amazing Stories. I think I did more of those than anybody. Um, so I had, I had a few things that I did with Stephen.
with the suite of music from the 1985 film Young Sherlock Holmes, we've come to the end of part one of our interview with Bruce Broughton. Thank you for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. And if you want to know what other music was played on this show, please go to the playlist on the webpage on the website at cinematicsound.net. And I do hope you enjoyed the new Talking Soundtracks theme tune composed by David Cosina. I leave you with music from another of Bruce Broughton's Americana scores, which he composed so well for television. Here is a piece called Setting Out from the 1997 miniseries True Women, performed by the Symphony of London and recorded by Mike Ross Trevor. Part two of this interview will be with you very, very soon on Talking Soundtracks, but until then, from me, Jason Drury, it's take care, stay safe, and happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show 
and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to TeePublic to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>